I have uh, one Sunday left in this preaching cycle, and I considered this week whether I should return to the book of Proverbs and try to get uh, one more installment of that series done before I had a month where I wouldn't be preaching, and decided it would probably be best to wait until I have a series of uh, Sundays together to do that. Uh, We've had some special services this uh, month already with our visiting preacher, Steve Schlissel, and the need to hear our yearly sermon on tithing and our installation of a uh, deacon last Lord's Day. And so I've chosen a subject of topical interest this morning to address you on. And as you see in your bulletins, the title of this morning's message is The Danger of Being Normal. And I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 53 for our Old Testament reading. Psalm 53 in the Old Testament. Hear now God's word. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek after God. Every one of them has gone back. They are together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon God? There were they in great fear, where no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encamped against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God hath rejected them. O that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when God bringeth back the captivity of his people. Then shall Jacob rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. And in the New Testament we take as our reading this morning from God's word, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 23. Romans, the third chapter, beginning the reading at the ninth verse. Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we before laid to the charge both of Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They have all turned aside, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not so much as one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it speaketh to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, a righteousness of God hath been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, unto all them that believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. The news convinces us, I think, daily that there are very horrible people in this world and there are disgusting things that happen all around us. A steady diet, indeed, a steady diet of the news taken seriously, not just as entertainment, can sour the stomach 
and depress the mind. Just look at the monstrous and the continuous evil all around us. And look at it not as it's often portrayed in the news as a piece of six o'clock entertainment, but look at it seriously for the existential reality that it is. Uh, This uh, last uh, week or two, we've been uh, stricken with the news of this author, Salman Rushdie, who has written a book entitled The Satanic Verses, where a man uses his, um, some people call creative talent, uh, to really bring low, to uh, insult the religious convictions and practices of a certain portion of the earth's population. Now, one might think that that in itself shows a wicked enough heart, but uh, then the response that we get from the Muslim world about the insult paid to it seems even ten times worse, maybe a hundred times worse, as uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini says that a bounty shall be put on this man's head. And, of course, uh, retaliation is appropriate for any good, pious Muslim against those who even market the book that he has written. And then, of course, we see the retaliation of the Western world against this bounty on the author's head and the uh, equally ungodly attitude that says that, you know, literary freedom is the highest priority, apparently, in Western culture. And, And we have people who are, you know, rebounding to the defense of this wicked man who has written this wicked book because they don't like the wicked people who want to kill this wicked man. And then we get the religion bashing that goes on in response to this because, as you read even in the, in the register, all those people say, see, this is what religion's all about. And all religions do the same thing. It's not just the Muslims. We need to hate them all and get to a world that's free of religion and then we'll have a world that's free of, uh, well, not sin because you can't have sin without religion, but we'll have a world free of uh, ugliness, apparently. Uh, the hypocrisy that we hear in the press about um, press freedom and about uh, literary freedom, the hypocrisy about religion, the hypocrisy about hatred of people of other religions and so forth, is just overwhelming. But we wouldn't want to censor anyone. Okay? And then, of course, we have Cat Stevens, the uh, one-time popular singer, who says, well, you know, Khomeini did the right thing. And we have uh, the same liberal mindset in the West that wants to protect the author who insulted the Muslims, now burning the records and the poetry of Cat Stevens because he's supporting Khomeini. And so apparently censorship is all right as long as it's censorship that comes from a particular angle. this, This whole hypocrisy, I mean, I look at that and I say, these people, all of them, the whole lot of them have made such a horrible world for us. Recently, we read in the news of and hear in the news of this uh, individual, Ted Bundy, who was found guilty, apparently was uh, horribly guilty, of untold atrocity against women, an untold number of murders that he has committed. In fact, before his execution, uh, his confessing to, uh, you know, that staggers the imagination, the number of people that this man could have wickedly mutilated in the way that he did. And so while he's being executed, we have people selling T-shirts outside the prison where he's executed, rejoicing in this situation. One is reminded of the horrors of the French Revolution and uh, the guillotines and the way people came to see the guillotines operate as a form of entertainment and to party about that. Those people make this such a horrible world to live in. A gentleman by the name of Randy Kraft is presently on trial here in Orange County for homosexual mutilation of any number of young men and multiple murders. Uh, We don't know whether he is guilty or not, but he is on trial for that. Someone is guilty of these horrible murders. 
And such people make this a horrible world. I recently saw the movie Mississippi Burning, which graphically portrays the horror of racial bigotry, hatred, and violence. And it was very effective because I had lived in the state of Mississippi. Not only were the surroundings um, familiar enough to memory, but the attitudes and the, uh, the approach of people to the social problem of racism was so familiar that it was very hard to take. All of this violence in the name of white Anglo-Saxon Christian democracy, to use the expression the KKK made famous, all of this in the South, though, remember, in the South, but also, if you uh, are to be honest, among the skinheads in the Aryan nation and a number of other uh, racist groups that are all about us today, frightening groups everywhere. And I tell you, such people, as I'm talking about, make this a horrible world to live in. But none of it's new. You know, as I'm talking about these people, as I read about these things in the news, as I watch it in the movies and so forth, there's this almost automatic psychological thing built up, the what I want to call us and them syndrome. There's us normal people, and then there's those horrible, racist, violent, sexually perverted, murderous, deceitful people out there in the world that we read about in the news every day. We stand over against them. But we stand over against them not only in the contemporary world where such people have made this such a horrible place. There's this we and us dichotomy all through history, too. And we read in the history books of horrible people. I'm afraid we tend to think in those terms. We look at the brutality and the atrocities of a Genghis Khan or a Adolf Hitler. And we say, what is it that makes such people like that? I think uh, Hitler's a very good illustration, above all in our generation, has become perhaps the symbol of evil, of a wicked man. And Hitler had his henchmen, especially Adolf Eichmann, who was a key designer, one of the, uh, one of the main promoters of the Jewish Holocaust. And we are glad not to be so horrible as them, as an Eichmann, as a Hitler. But you know, the problem is that these moral monsters all about us, these moral monsters are, according to the Bible, normal people like us. The title of this morning's message actually comes from a short pamphlet by the same name written by Chuck Colson. And the title is explained um, by reading these words from the pamphlet. If I might take just a few moments with you here. Colson writes, as Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes introduced a short story about Nazi... Adolf Eichmann, a principal architect of the Holocaust, he posed a central question at the program's outset, and we quote, how is it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? The startling question, excuse me, the startling answer to Wallace's shocking question came in an interview with Yehiel Dinur, a concentration camp survivor who testified against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. A film clip from Eichmann's 1961 trial showed Dinur walking into the courtroom, stopping short, and seeing Eichmann for the first time since the Nazi had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. Dinur began to sob uncontrollably, then fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor. Was Dinur overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories, 
No, it was none of these. Rather, as Denure explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Denure. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. Wallace's summation of Denure's terrible discovery, Eichmann is in all of us, is a horrifying statement, but it indeed captures the central truth of man's nature. Sin is in each of us. Not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin itself. I know this most intimately from personal experience. During the throes of Watergate, I sat alone in my car one night as my own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and pride and evil so deep within me, was thrust before my eyes forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean. And worst of all, I could not escape. In those moments of clarity, I found myself irresistibly driven into the arms of the living God. You see, it's a real mistake for us to think that these moral monsters in our world, the Ted Bundys and the Adolf Eichmanns and all the rest, are a different kind of person than us, in a different class altogether. Most of you, I trust, will remember the best-known of the Pogo cartoons, where you have Pogo and his friend having traipsed around a tree, apparently for quite a few hours, following their own foot tracks. And the caption at the bottom says, We have met the enemy, and it is us. Truly spoken. If we want to find why there is all this horror and atrocity and deceit and wickedness and greed and lust in the world... We need to realize that it's us. We're not helped today by modern psychology. Modern psychology still wants to promote the idea of different stratas of humanity. Wants to promote the idea that there are different classes, different mentalities. And that what you have is the psychotic personality that does these sorts of things. But not normal people. But what Colson so well understood the night he became a Christian. And what was even portrayed in such a secular program as 60 Minutes so well is that as a matter of fact, that wickedness we see in other people is wickedness we can see in ourselves. Paul talked about this dividing of humanity into the better and the worst morally. He talked about this in Romans, the second chapter, addressing the Jewish hypocrisy that they, because they had the law, were a better kind of people and could set themselves off from the Greek-Gentile world with its impiety and its filthiness and its sin. Paul exposed there the us-them syndrome so very well, where in Romans, the second chapter, he says, you're no better than they are. In fact, you're even worse because you have the law to guide you and you don't do any better than those who don't. The fact of the matter is we all share the same humanity. The horrible people of the world are really normal people like you and me. What they've done, we are capable of doing. And that's the sentence you're not going to believe, and so I'm going to say it again. I want God to indict you. What the Eichmanns and the Bundys of this world and the bigots in the South that you think are just confined to some geographical locale, what those people have done and which so disgust you, you can do. 
In your own heart, if you are honest, you will find the demons of rage and hatred and murder and lust. Murder, even. My own confession. I, I know what it is to hate. I know what it is to be self-centered. But I never would have thought I could have thought of murder, but I can think of murder. I know that now. The greed, the deceit that is there, and we don't even mention the vices of sloth and indifference and cowardice and lovelessness and dishonesty and impiety, as well as the polluting tendencies to compromise of our principles, to convenience, tainted pragmatism, to self-centeredness and pride and rationalization. And every one of those you know, is like an indictment written as your death warrant. If you stop and be honest with yourself, they are within you. The Bible says that our natural state, our normal state as human beings is that of depravity. That word's not popular today. You'll find even theologians shying away from it. It sounds so strong. A depraved nature, exactly what the Bible teaches. In that movie that I mentioned already, Mississippi Burning, in one scene they have an FBI agent who asks, uh, all the hatred, where does it come from? The Bible says it comes from our hearts. That's the kind of people we are. We want to think of that hatred as out there, almost like an object, maybe a disease like bacteria that infects certain people, but it's not out there to infect us. It's inside us coming out to infect the world. Both in the Old Testament and in the New, we read this morning, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Our normal condition, our normal condition, not the normal conditions of the Hitlers of this world, but our normal condition and the condition which is normal to mankind. Statistically, this is the norm, if you will. In fact, it's universal. Is that of unrighteousness. Genesis 8.21 says, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. When I use that text to show people their sin, I like to point out the fact that this is written after the flood. Many people know of the text in Genesis 6 that says something very similar to that. We have this tendency to think, well, because the world had become so evil and every imagination of man's heart was wicked all the time and violence covered the earth, that God then took care of that with the flood. But it's after the flood that he says to Noah, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The psalmist could say, behold, in sin did my mother conceive me. And the psalmist wrote that in the 51st Psalm, the penitential prayer of David. What do you think King David, the man who was close to God's heart, could do? Could he abuse his power as king to take a woman that did not belong to him? Could he scheme to have her husband killed to cover his sin? David didn't think so. That's hard to believe. Even after he did it, he didn't confess his sin. If you stop some time, do a mental exercise and ask, what rationalizations do you think David was capable of to continue on until Nathan the prophet came in and told him a story? And David saw the guilt of the individual in the story, and Nathan said, but David, you're the man. You're the one I'm talking about. What does it take for you to have a Nathan stand in this pulpit and say, you're the one. You were conceived in sin. You are capable of such things. Who can say I've made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin, the proverb says. 
Ecclesiastes 7, there is not a righteous man upon earth that doeth good and has never sinned. The prophet Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And then to nail that indictment even more firmly into our hearts, Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not our worst efforts, our best, are unrighteous, filthy rags in the sight of God. Jeremiah, the prophet, tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Jeremiah could only stand back at the horror. Remember Kurtz in the Heart of Darkness, that novel by Conrad, the horror, and say, who can know it? Paul said, when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. He doesn't say when you were servants of sin, you had a mixed bag, you had a mixed record. If we graded on a curve, maybe you'd be toward the top of the curve. He said you were free from righteousness. There was no question about righteousness in your life when you were servants of sin. And you know, the natural remedies that are offered to our normal condition as human beings are utterly powerless to deal with that. If this morning you are thinking, if I could rattle your closets just a bit here, if you are thinking of those secret sins that others sitting around you, maybe your own husband or wife don't know about, if you could think of those things, ask what would cure you of them? What would cure the world of these horrible atrocities? The Bible would say nothing. And this natural world can do it. I've already referred to this movie, Mississippi Burning. In another scene, an FBI agent suggests to the agent that he's with, that his own father's racial hatred was born, one, of ignorance, or, on the other hand, of what we might call confusion of causes over his poverty. He tells the story of how a black man who was a farmer in the same area as his own father um, did well enough to buy a mule, which only enabled him, of course, to be a better farmer and perhaps rent even more land. And uh, there was a great deal of talk among the white folk about this uh, black man who had his mule, and one day the mule turned up dead. The water had been poisoned and the mule was dead. Eventually the black man left town. And the FBI agent speaks of the day that he doesn't really confront his father, but he just looks at his father and the father knows that the son knows that he's done it. And his response to that is that his father didn't know that what he was really hating was poverty rather than someone of another race. I want to suggest to you that's as much as a whitewash as anything I've seen in the movies. It's not confusion over causes. It's not ignorance that leads to racial bigotry and hatred. Education has done nothing to alter man's moral nature. Contrary to the myth of Plato, who said in the Republic that if he educate the kids right, then we'll have a good state. Contrary to the myth of Rousseau, And Emile, who said that if we just get people away from the corrupting influence of civilization and educate them properly, naturally, that they'll do what is right. Contrary to the myth of all of such philosophers, education does not cure men of their evil. Education only refines their ability to be evil. I've used this illustration in this pulpit before. I think it's apt. Do you think the sex education that has become so popular in the last quarter century in the public schools has stopped young people from fornicating? It has only encouraged it. The incidences of fornication and of childbirth outside of wedlock have grown incrementally with the education about sex that is supposed to 
stop that problem. We say no to drugs. We think our phrases and our explanation of the dangers of drugs turns kids away. And the numbers keep getting bigger and bigger. Education does not change the heart of man. Neither does science. Neither does medicine. Neither does psychology. They are all impotent to generate a cure for that evil that is characteristic of men. That normalcy about all of us. Paul put it this way, I am carnal, sold under sin. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither can it be. It is impossible for the carnal mind to be subject to God's law. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Job put it this way, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There isn't one. And Jeremiah added, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to do evil. We can't change ourselves. Within the natural world around us, there is no power, there is no wisdom, there is no capability to change the natural, normal, wickedness, self-centeredness of sin that infects each and every one of us. And that's why the title of the sermon is The Danger of Being Normal. But I want you to look at the extraordinary status of one man. We might say the abnormality of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. Extraordinary because there was a time, we read in John the 8th chapter, where Jesus stood up and said, which one of you indicts me of sin? Anyone in this room want to stand up, even in this room full of friends and Christian brothers, and say, which one of you would indict me of sin? We wouldn't dare to do it, much less out in the world where we probably act much worse than we do on Sunday morning. But Jesus somehow had the audacity to say, I invite anyone who can to bring to my attention any sin that I have committed. Out of the depth of his own life and character, Jesus could teach, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what I have, what it took to teach that in my own thinking would I dare to come and say now look I've got this worked out you've got to be perfect Jesus could say it though and be taken seriously in Hebrews the fourth chapter we read that Jesus was tempted in every point as we are in these famous words yet without sin this last week I was witnessing to one of the students at our school She was very um, very weighed down with the guilt of her own sin. Wanted to know what to do about that. She was upset because she differed with her own father religiously, but she didn't know what to do with this sin within her. She said, I've listened to what you've said in class, and I have to agree. I am a sinner, but what do I do about that? And I pointed her to Jesus, and she said, but he sinned too, didn't he? And you should have seen the look on her face when I shot back immediately. No, he's the one who never did. She was horrified. Could anyone make such a claim? And I said, yeah, that is something that sets him apart. Jesus could invite people to find sin in his life, and they couldn't. And those who knew him best, through the centuries their words have endured, they wrote down, yet without sin. In Hebrews 7, the chapter, we read that such a high priest becomes us, one is holy and defiled and without sin, undefiled and without sin. Only that kind of high priest could intercede for us. 
And so you see the wonder of the biblical message about the exchange of status that we enjoy if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. The Bible teaches that we have nothing to offer to God but menstruous cloth, filthy rags as righteousness. But Jesus came into this world and was holy and undefiled, separate from sinners, never offended against the law of God, never acted unlovingly, never acted selfishly, never fell short of the glory of God. And Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53 puts it in words that I trust you know very well. When he says he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquity, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but Jehovah laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Peter, reflecting upon that passage in Isaiah 53, wrote in his own words about this exchange of status in 1 Peter 3.18, saying, Because Christ suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. He suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous the abnormal for the normal. Paul said, God made him to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My friends, there's a great danger if you are normal. The danger that you are under the wrath and the curse of God because of that normal, unrighteous character which you can do nothing about and the natural world can do nothing about and only God can take care of. When we trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, here's this fancy theological word, but it is so blessed and precious. The Bible teaches us that God imputes to Jesus our normal state of sin and turns around and imputes to us his abnormal state of righteousness. There's a great danger in remaining normal. And the only hope that any of us has is that we might trade places with the one abnormal man who lived in all of history, that his righteousness would be credited to us and our sins borne away by him. Is that something that you understand from the heart? Let's pray. Lord, please cure us of our tendency to think of the wickedness and horribleness of this world as something outside of ourselves. Please cure us of the subtle pride that looks upon the mass murderers and those guilty of racial violence and all these other wicked things as people unlike ourselves, as them rather than us. Help us to see that we are all together in this cesspool of sin. Help us to see that our normal state is a hopeless, filthy, helpless state. That we might, even as our brother Chuck Colson, might be driven to the arms of the living God. That we would exchange status with Jesus, who was so different from us, so extraordinary, because he was so free of sin. Lord, we long to be like him. We know that we're not. We long to be like him. We ask that you might begin the process of making us like unto Jesus by first forgiving us today. 
Forgive us of our sin and treat us as if we were not guilty of all those things which we know in the privacy of our closets we're guilty of. Forgive us of our sin. Lay it upon Jesus that it might be borne away and that his righteousness might gloriously as a gift be imputed to us that we might enjoy a normal life throughout eternity that is sin-free. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.